Hello, and welcome to another episode of Downtime with the Cranston Public Library. We're a podcast for cool people who love libraries where we talk about what we've been reading, what we've been watching, and what we've been loving. I'm your host, Taylor, and this week we wanted to share with you a Roadie Radio episode where they shared a presentation by Howard S. Weitz, author of Henny and Her Boat, which is about the incredible story of Henny Sindig and her role in helping Jews escape Nazi-occupied Denmark. We hope you enjoy it. It's a pleasure to present uh, a different kind of Holocaust story, a story of the one nationwide effort to save a country's Jews from the Nazis. Three and a half years after the Nazis invaded Denmark, when the Danes could no longer keep their Jewish countrymen safe at home, when it suddenly became clear that the Danish Jews could only be saved by getting them out of Nazi-occupied territory, the country sprang into action to warn the Jews of the Nazis' plans to capture them in a matter of days, to find temporary refuge within Denmark, and to commence a massive maritime evacuation to Sweden, the only unoccupied territory within reach. The rescue of the Danish Jews was a mammoth operation and an incredibly successful one. During the month of October 1943, a thousand fishermen and other mariners, manning approximately 300 rescue vessels, supported by tens of thousands of other Danes on shore, transported nearly 95% of Denmark's Jewish population, some 7,742 individuals, to safety, and with them, another 650 loved ones of other faiths. During a month of clandestine crossings from occupied Denmark, crossed that body of water known as the Orson to Sweden. From high overhead, the nearly simultaneous launch of rescue operations up and down the Danish coast would have looked like a magnificently orchestrated, centrally directed event. In fact, it was a sum total of hundreds of individual efforts, initiated in some cases by boat owners and their crews, and in others by individuals who set out to recruit them. Gerda III, which is preserved and displayed at Mystic Seaport, is one of the vessels that took part. And it's largely through the story of this vessel and the people associated with it that I'll be describing what took place. It's one of just three vessels out of the 300 that remain afloat. It survives thanks to the Museum of Jewish Heritage in New York, which sent a delegation to Denmark in search of a rescue boat while the museum was still on the drawing boards in the 1990s. There, it acquired Gerda III as a gift from the Danish government, restored it to precisely uh, what it uh, was during World War II before bringing it to the U.S. And then thanks to Mystic Seaport, which has maintained and displayed the boat on behalf of the Museum of Jewish Heritage since its arrival in 1997. My knowledge of the subject derives from nearly 10 years that I've spent helping to preserve the vessel as a seaport volunteer and also researching a story both here and in Denmark, the story of the boat uh, and, again, the people associated with it. If you were to save one boat, this would be it. It's likely that any boat made more crossings or rescued more people than Gerda III. It conducted rescue missions throughout the month-long Jewish rescue operation in October 43, when it saved some 300 people, 10 to 15 at a time in each crossing, and throughout the rest of the five-year Nazi occupation of Denmark, when Gerda III served as a lifeboat for hundreds of other people who were being hunted by the Nazis, a period in which another six or 700 people were saved by this boat. Its role as a leading boat in the Jewish rescue mission had a lot to do with the type of boat it is, it was built in 1926 for the Danish Lighthouse and Buoy Service. 
to maintain navigation aids along the Danish shore, and to bring supplies and crew changes to a major lighthouse, the Drogden Lighthouse, right where the Baltic narrows down to that strait between Denmark and Sweden. It was built to go out every day, often in the rough weather experience during the rescue, and during World War II, its job provided an ideal cover story for its hundreds of clandestine rescue missions. But the most significant key to its success was the group of people that formed up around it. At the core of the operation, was Henny Sindig, a young woman who had just turned 22 at the start of the rescue. The rescue operation brought her quickly into uh, a more mature, serious adulthood. She had been employed since turning 18 by the lighthouse and buoy service, and also important for purposes of the rescue. She was a daughter of a Danish Navy officer who had this lighthouse and buoy service, much like the Coast Guard, uh, under his command. Another key participant was a 20-year-old Danish Navy cadet, known to all his friends as Mix, who became over a tumultuous 14 months, the first great love of Henny's life, and a central figure uh, in the rescue and resistance. Then there was the boat's four-man crew, and finally, seven members of a university-based resistance group led by a medical student named Jorgen Kieler. Their combination, all of these people together, propelled the Gerda Rescue Group to the forefront of the overall rescue operation. The story begins uh, in April uh, 1940, seven months uh, after the start of World War II, when Danes awoke to a land, sea, and air invasion. Denmark was forced to surrender in a matter of hours, but not unconditionally. Germany, to be sure, satisfied its initial goals, securing a share of Denmark's agricultural output, the ability to produce goods uh, in its factories, the ability to build and man coastal fortifications, and with its simultaneous conquest of Norway, just above Denmark, control over access to the Baltic. But Denmark also obtained an important concession in return for its military stand-down, an assurance of political independence that Danes construed to guarantee the preservation of its democratically elected government, control over its internal affairs, and as a vital part of that control, the ability to protect Jews and other countrymen from Nazi interference with their lives and property. Remarkably, for three and a half years of occupation, that pact held and Danes successfully precluded the kind of Nazi measures that were put in place in every other occupied country to demonize, isolate, and persecute the Jews. Danish Jews could maintain normal routines, but it would certainly be too much to say they could maintain normal lives. With Hitler's Berlin headquarters, only 225 miles from Copenhagen, his troops on the streets, the ever-escalating persecution of Jews across the border, and ultimately the disappearance of Jewish relatives and friends from the rest of Hitler's domain, it became increasingly clear that the freedom and very probably the lives of the Danish Jews rested on Denmark's continued commitment and ability to protect them. Year after year, the Nazis pressured Denmark to restrict the freedom of Danish Jews and were repeatedly rebuffed. That pressure intensified after January 1942, when at the Wannsee Conference, the Nazis completed their plans for the final solution, the mass murder of Europe's Jews, and put those plans into motion. The Nazis could be persuaded to defer action against the Danish Jews, but in the end, they were not about to let Denmark stand in the way of Hitler's dream of a Jew-free Europe. And so as the final solution gathered momentum and millions of people uh, were being sent to the death camps, the Nazis turned up pressure on Denmark to fall in line, and Denmark continued to say no. 
By the start of 1943, disputes over the fate of Denmark's Jews had become a cause of great unrest, but not the only one. Throughout Denmark, there was a growing weariness of occupation, and by 1943, an uptick in resistance. An explosion was coming, and on August 25, 1943, it literally arrived when an early resistance group known as Holgodansk blew up an exhibition hall at Copenhagen that was being ready to house another 2,000 German troops scheduled to arrive the next day. The blast reduced the building to rubble, and anything left of peaceful coexistence came crashing down with it. When the Danish government refused to crack down on the resistance, the Nazis declared martial law, dissolved parliament, and dispatched troops to capture the few military installations that had remained under Danish and Danish hands, uh, although uh, under very tight restrictions as well. Among these was the Royal Dockyards, the home port of the Danish Navy since the 1600s. In the short time that sailors could hold off the German military, Danish crews followed standing orders to prevent any vessel from falling into Nazi hands. In an action that helped pave the way for the maritime evacuation was to follow two months later, 29 Danish warships were blown up and sent to the bottom of their docks. At least two others were scuttled at sea. 13 vessels escaped to Sweden. Against this backdrop, the occupation chief and SS uh, officer Werner Best telegrammed Berlin that measures should now be taken toward a solution of the problem of the Jews. And a typically ruthless plan was put into operation. Uh, Nazi uh, forces within Denmark stole membership lists with names and addresses of Jews from the Jewish community offices, providing a roadmap for the Gestapo to follow. 300 Gestapo agents were sent in to round up Denmark's Jews in a single night. The night chosen was a Friday night, October 1st into 2nd, two days after the start of the High Holy Days. Two troop ships were sent to Copenhagen to hold the Jews that they anticipated capturing and begin their transport to the concentration camps. In any other occupied country, all of this would have gone according to plan. Instead, the Gestapo came up almost empty-handed. The unraveling had an unlikely starting point. A civilian member of the occupation staff named George Dukovitz. As the German-appointed harbor master for Copenhagen, he was responsible for accommodating the troop ships that were to be part of this operation. But he wanted no part of it. He first went up the chain of command, trying unsuccessfully to abort the plan, though his objections were moral ones, his argument was a practical one, that any attack against the Danish Jews would trigger a nationwide revolt, unlike anything the Nazis had experienced elsewhere uh, or were likely uh, able to imagine. When that approach failed, and with just 72 hours to go before the Gestapo raids began, Dukovic revealed the plan to one of Denmark's political leaders, a man named Hans Ettoff. And Ettoff went into immediate action. He began by alerting the rabbi of Copenhagen's great synagogue, and the next morning, with Rosh Hashanah services due to start that night, the rabbi told the 150 congregants who uh, assembled that morning that the Nazis were about to capture all of the Danish Jews for shipment to concentration camps, and that you must leave now and pass the word so that two or three hours from now, everyone will know what was happening. By tonight, we must all be in hiding. Hedoff also uses party apparatus to send warnings through numerous other channels, teachers to students, business owners to employees, colleges suspended classes so that students could go out and spread the word. As a result, when the Gestapo launched its raid, it captured only 202 Jews in Copenhagen, mostly elderly, 82 in the rest of Denmark. For Gestapo, it was an unprecedented failure. For the Jews, it was a temporary reprieve. 
with Viscapo in hot pursuit, no place in Denmark was safe for long. Sweden, across the strait from Denmark, was the only refuge within reach, but it had thus far refused to open its doors. It liked being unoccupied. It didn't want to antagonize Hitler. But on Saturday, the day following the Gestapo raids, Sweden had a change of heart. That change was prompted, or at least accelerated, by one of the first refugees to reach its shores, Danish nuclear physicist and Nobel Prize winner Niels Bohr. Bohr, whose mother was Jewish, was smuggled out of Copenhagen on a small fishing boat and brought to Sweden, where a British plane awaited him, ready to take him to England, from which it was hoped by the Allies he would move on to the United States. But Bohr refused to go further until Sweden announced in a radio broadcast that he knew could be heard throughout Denmark that Sweden would accept every Danish Jew who could reach its shores. His bargaining power and Allied persuasion prevailed, and on the night of Saturday, October 2, the broadcast he demanded began. A week later, the New York Times reported that Bohr reached London from Sweden today, bearing what a Dane in Stockholm said were plans for a new invention involving atomic explosions. The plans were described as of the greatest importance to the Allied war effort. With Sweden's broadcast, the race was on. Jews headed to fishing villages, other harbors, north and south of Copenhagen, where most of the Jewish population lived, hoping to find a way out. Here you can see the overall terrain, the predicament, and also the, the opportunities. The water is narrow as you get north of Copenhagen, reaching the narrowest point at Helsingor, or Elsinore uh, as we tend to know it, the home of Hamlet Castle, where the gap is just two and a half miles across. And so in the initial day or two, people tended to flock there, where on a map, it looked like you would have the best shot. But what looked easiest on the map was often toughest on the ground. The harbors north of Copenhagen were generally man-made harbors with large walls that were built to keep the waves out, but that were also well-suited for preventing boats from leaving or from intercepting them on the way back. There were designs that contributed to disasters in the early chaotic days when rescue plans were still being developed. Right at the outset, Sunday, October 3rd, uh, all the way on the northern tip at uh, Gilalai, a boat carrying 19 Jews was uh, spotted, uh, intercepted, fired upon uh, by the Nazis as a sort to leave the harbor. And as the pilot house was being perforated uh, with gunfire, the crew jumped overboard. The Jews on board attempted to press on, but quickly ran aground and followed the crew into the water, uh, then being captured as they swam ashore. On the next day, Monday, October 4, uh, in a fishing village about halfway between Gilalai and Copenhagen, eight fishing boats successfully brought uh, Jews to Sweden. But on their return, the crews were arrested and sent to a Nazi prison where another prisoner reported that they were treated brutally. Their rookie mistake uh, in this uh, rescue operation returning at the height of fishing season with dry nets uh, and empty fishing holds. The same day uh, in uh, Dralar, which is at least something approaching how the Danes pronounce it, uh, about six miles south of Copenhagen, carloads of refugees were cut off by German soldiers as they headed for waiting boats. A short time later, a boat near the harbor hit a mine and exploded. Tuesday, back in Gilalai, the worst disaster of the rescue occurred. With the harbor closed and Jews continuing to stream into town, townspeople attempted to protect them by hiding them in a church loft where they thought they would be safe. But an informer gave their position away, and 80 people, all but one young boy who climbed up into the bell tower, were captured. 
In another port, a Jewish engineering student was shot dead by Gestapo agents as he was casting off the dock lines of a rescue boat that he had arranged for himself and others. Despite the clear dangers, Henny and the crew of Gerda III threw themselves into the rescue effort at the outset. Explaining her decision, Henny stated, we never divide ourselves up into Danes or Jews. The Jews were just Danes like we were, and the Nazi attack on the Jews was therefore an attack on our Danish people. Once she said, that made her furious. It was the crew that initiated the effort. They were among the very few who had already had some experience with rescue missions. Prior to the Jewish rescue operation, an early resistance group based in Drawer turned to Gerda III to evacuate members of that group from Denmark when the need arose. The resistance group based there was led by two sons of the Drogden Lighthouse Keeper. And in those early days, Gerda would take people just as far as the lighthouse, which then could serve as a suitable safe house at sea, where they would await another boat from Sweden to come and take them the rest of the way. But for the Jewish rescue, the crew needed to go further, all the way to Sweden. They needed to go far more often. They needed to reposition the boat, which was now docked at the Royal Dockyard, surrounded by Nazi warships, to a place where it was more feasible to get Jewish refugees on board. They needed at least tacit approval from Henny's father, and they needed to make contact with refugees who were already in hiding. The crew turned to Henny for help with all of these needs, and she threw herself in completely. Henny relocated Gerda to a dock behind a warehouse across the harbor from downtown Copenhagen in a neighborhood called Christianhaven, reachable by a bridge that people walk and bicycle across from Copenhagen daily. On one side, as Henny described it, was a gate opening onto the wharf just in front of the place where Gerda III was docked. On the other side, a door on the street through which we could enter quickly. And the warehouse had an attic uh, where she could hide as many refugees as they could fit aboard the boat the next day. She also arranged safe houses, nearby private homes, where owners were happy to have refugees wait in hiding for what turned out to be as many as four or five days until they could take the last steps to the warehouse, to the attic, and then on to Gerda III. Making contact with Jews who were hidden all over Copenhagen and surrounding areas was Henny's next job. That task was accomplished, in large measure, by joining forces with Keeler's student group. And that group were perfect partners. Because they consisted mainly of medical students, they had ties to a large hospital complex within Copenhagen that spread the word that Jews who could reach the hospital complex would be hidden, first in patient beds with fictitious names and charts, and then when those quickly filled the capacity in nursing quarters and other staff quarters, while doctors worked on linking them with escape boats. And because the student group's activity prior to the rescue was publishing an underground newspaper, they had close ties to a Copenhagen bookstore whose back room was first a center for underground press activities and then another center for linking refugees with escape boats and later a boardroom for the armed resistance. During the rescue, Keeler's contacts were exactly what Henny needed, and Henny's boat was exactly what Keeler needed. But they lived in different worlds until Mix, who became a member of Keeler's group shortly before the rescue began, brought them together. Through this group, each day, Henny was given lists that she had to memorize with names of refugees and places to meet that day. It was arranged, as she explained, for each refugee, accompanied by no more than one child, to show up at a certain time and place. And he first escorted them to the safe houses, the private homes. And then at 1 a.m., it became her job to pick them up one at a time 
and bring them to the warehouse attic. After carefully navigating the darkened streets, well after the Nazi-imposed curfew, a dangerous act in itself, the refugees spent the night in the attic, Penny continued to explain, as quiet as mice. The worst time was when we had many children, not to mention infants. We always carried a jar of sleeping pills, and almost every night it was necessary to quiet some children with a pill to get some calm in the group. Food was taken care of. There was always something to eat or drink for our guests in the attic, but no one could eat. We all had a bad case of stomach ache, and the night seemed endlessly long, both for the refugees and the five of us, the five being Henny and the four crew members. One of the refugees, for whom it was undoubtedly a particularly long night, was a 19-year-old named Gert Lilienfeld, one of the 80 people who had been captured in the church loft in Gilroy. Gert managed to jump from a German army truck when it stopped briefly in front of Gestapo headquarters in Copenhagen, ran off, taxi driver observing his escape, picked him up, brought him to another hospital uh, where he was again temporarily hidden and where the doctors arranged for his escape on Gerda. Gert had already been on the run for five years. He was one of several hundred children from Germany and Austria who were brought to Denmark by Youth Aliyah with the intention of moving them on to pre-Israel Palestine. But with the Nazi invasion, they could go no further. They were trapped and taken in by Danish, mostly farm families, where they lived and were safeguarded until the need to escape Denmark arose. Another Gerda passenger that we know of was a 14-year-old named Aaron Engelhardt, who lived in Copenhagen with his parents and four younger siblings. For Aaron and his family, the escape began with a knock on their door by their apartment building's manager, who came to warn them that the Nazis were coming and that they needed to hide. They spent the first uh, night as fugitives in her apartment, and then, because of their large number, dispersed until word reached Aaron's father that doctors at the hospital complex were organizing escape routes to Sweden. Following instructions, Aaron's father collected the family and headed to the hospital chapel. From there, they were led through an underground passage to an auditorium where hundreds of other Jews were already waiting. For a few nights, they were hidden in the nurses' quarters and then taken by ambulances to rendezvous points to meet Henny. Step by step, she escorted them to the attic. And Aaron provided rich details about the final seconds of that escape effort. In the earliest pre-dawn hours that the crew could appear to be readying the boat for its authorized mission, the crew boarded, and Henny led the Jews from the attic to the ground floor. There she arranged them uh, in two rows, and there they stood in the darkness just inside the gate that opened onto the wharf, and directly in front of them, they could see Gerda III just a few meters away across a cobblestone lane. And for them, depending on where you were in the month of October, that boat represented the first tangible sign in days or weeks that they could get out of this. But they also saw one final obstacle between them and the boat and their, their hope of survival. That obstacle was two German sentries who marched up and down the dock in endless repetition, actually crisscrossing directly in front of Gerda, going to the ends of the dock, reversing course, and coming back again. From Gerda III's deck, the crew watched these sentries as well, waiting for the moment when they were nearing the end of the wharf with their backs turned, when the moment was as good as it was going to get for one more person to race across to the boat. And when that chance arose, when that moment came, they would signal Henny, and Henny would literally propel the next person out because there was no time for debate, no time to someone to ask, maybe later would be better. That was the chance. She would push them out. They would dash across the cobblestone lane 
into the hands of a waiting crew member who would lift them up and quickly deposit them into the cargo hold, uh, which looks today as it did then, a space 10 by 12 feet, four and a half feet high in the center. Loaded, however, uh, at the time uh, with barrels, mainly barrels of oil for lighthouse generators in the center, other gear. And the people would spend their time in there with their backs braced against the ceiling planks of a hull, built to be further recessed, harder to find if anybody opened it up, also to be braced against the motion of the boat. <laughs> Hatch covers would be put over them, as much heavy gear as possible were deposited on top of that to discourage people from saying they want to see what's below. And the Jews would sit there in darkness, awaiting the boat's authorized 7 a.m. departure time. When that time came and the crew started up the engine, the sentries would come on board for a cursory look around. And the crew, being smart guys, decided early on that this will work out better for everybody if they make this a friendly encounter rather than a hostile one. And so they always had a couple beers ready to give to the sentries, who would be glad to take them, would sit on the hatch covers above this uh, area, and there they and the crew would exchange toasts and chatter while the boots of the German sentries were about this far above the heads of the refugees below. Finally, the moment came when they could cast off their lines and head out to sea. From inside the warehouse, Henny watched the boat depart before going home to sleep for a few hours and then repeat the entire process as she did day after day for a month. Over the month-long rescue, Gerda's crew used several routes and destinations that we've been able to document thus far. The shortest, 14 miles to a small harbor, Basbakasham, up to about 25 miles, this more circuitous route to a more southerly port uh, in Sweden. In perfect conditions, the crossings would have taken about two to three and a half hours. Uh, in the conditions that tended to prevail, uh, you could add about 25% to that. Each route had its significant hazards. On every route, there was always the possibility of encountering a German patrol boat, which were limited in number but present, or hitting a floating mine, uh, or the hazards associated with rough weather. Early on, October 4th, 5th, 6th, gale or nail gale, gale conditions persisted with waves seven to nine feet much of the way. Not a significant problem for Gerda, but certainly creating an uncomfortable situation for people below. As soon as they reached Sweden, the refugees were put ashore as quickly as possible so that Gerda could get back to its regular routine, show up at the lighthouse with its supplies, a lighthouse now also manned by German uh, observers and anti-aircraft crews. There was no time to waste. The two known teenagers who escaped on Gerda described setting foot on Swedish soil, as you can imagine, as a moment of profound relief, as Gerd put it, a relief from anxiety, anxiety, anxiety. For all the hardships and early disasters, the rescue operation was an overwhelming success. It started with a trickle, but it built quickly. October 3rd, 300 people brought across. October 4, 400 in a full gale. October 5, 550. October 6 and 7, 700 people per day. And the two biggest days, October 8, Erev Yom Kippur, 1,100 people, and on Yom Kippur Day itself, the biggest day of the rescue operation, 1,400 people were brought across. Success was due to several factors. First and foremost, the sheer number of participants. Hundreds of boats from scores of harbors and hundreds of rendezvous points along the shore, places where people would wade out and waters up to chest deep to be hauled aboard waiting boats. Surge of resistance activities on land, sabotage of plants that were turning out war equipment, 
that diverted the Gestapo from searching for Jews to safeguarding their supply chain. The Danish Navy's demolition of its own fleet, which deprived the Nazis of what could have been an effective line of coastal patrol boats, and 1,300 fishing boats that were out day and night providing camouflage just by doing their job. When the October rescue was over, many boats and rescuers went back to regular occupations. Others, including Goethe and the people associated with it, did not. By September 1943, resistance was starting to erupt. But the Jewish rescue operation catapulted it to levels beyond what it had ever been and might ever have become. For the Goethe III rescue group and for the country as a whole, the rescue was a transforming experience. For the student group with which Henny bonded, the rescue was a bridge from underground press reporting on resistance to active participation. For Henny, it was a bridge from bystander status to combatant. Mix helped bring her across that bridge. He reached out for Henny soon after the Jewish rescue operation had begun and spoke to her about some more work that he had in mind once the Jews were safe. Recounting that conversation, Henny said, for a long time, we walked and talked together, and he told me a little about what work was going to be. Mix did not hide that the work was dangerous and suggested I take my time giving him an answer. But there was no reason for me to wait because, of course, I wanted to join. This was a process that repeated itself throughout Denmark. As people joined groups whose members were tested during the rescue and proved that they could be relied upon, as people found out what they had within themselves, and as they discovered that they could have a profound impact on the course of events. For Henny and other members of the Gerda III rescue group, throwing that away and going back to passive acceptance of the occupation would have been unbearable. Jorgen's university group, with Mix, a few of his fellow Navy cadets, and Henny operating as Holgerdansk II, became one of Denmark's most aggressive armed resistance groups. Their main task was blowing up factories that produced German war machines. Henny, explaining her initial role, said, My job was, among other things, to help the boys before a sabotage mission, to see if Germans were there. I usually walked with one of the boys, undoubtedly Mix, and we were supposed to look very much in love, not caring about anything in the world except the two of us, and at the same time, look around to see if there are any Germans. This is how I got into it, and then one thing led to another. Over the four months following the rescue of the Danish Jews, his group, blew up 22 major industrial sites and was producing Nazi war equipment, one of their raids significant enough to make the pages of the New York Times in the midst of World War II. The raids escalated into all-out military attacks, some machine guns, powerful explosives, each successful attack leading to something larger and more daring. Among the most spectacular was a January 15 bombing uh, of the Baumeister Wayne shipyard, Copenhagen's largest, which was then producing engines for the German Navy. Using a commandeered police boat to attack the shipyard. Mix led a 10-man team armed with pistols, some machine guns, hand grenades, and over 400 pounds of dynamite that put the plant out of commission for six months. And with the shipyard ablaze, Henny waited nearby for Mix and three other escaping saboteurs, each carrying weapon-filled suitcases, and led them to a nearby apartment hideout that she obtained for the night. There, after the others left, Henny recounted, Mix and I pulled all the furniture in front of the door, then we put the suitcases loaded with guns and grenades on the floor and spent a very uncomfortable night on top of them. Less than three weeks after the Burmeister attack, the group launched simultaneous attacks on two factories just above the border with Germany, putting them in unfamiliar territory in an area that had been part of Germany in the past, 
where allegiances were somewhat uncertain, they succeeded in blowing up one factory, and when they didn't succeed in blowing up the other that night, they decided to stay and take another crack at it the next evening. While they regrouped, the Nazis closed in, and in a series of running gun battles, two members of the group were killed, Jorgen Kieler and another member of the group shot and captured several others taken into Nazi custody. As the Nazis closed in, the Freedom Council, a governing body of the resistance, ordered the evacuation of members of the group who were still at large. Eddie and Mix were transported separately on a Danish police boat in late February 1944, Henny later recounting that they were followed by a German patrol boat that fired some shots at us that apparently hit enough so that the boat began to take on water, but not enough to stop it. Throughout the group's onshore resistance work, throughout those four months and beyond, Gerda III continued to perform rescue missions. No longer crossing by day, but now several nights each week, it brought across Allied airmen, fighter pilots, and bomber crews whose planes were too badly damaged to make it back to their bases and had to land, crash, or parachute onto Danish soil, and an ever-increasing number of Danish resistance fighters and their families who had to flee when the Nazis were closing in on them. It did that every week until the war was over. In Sweden, Henny and Mix joined the Danish Brigade. Their lives consisted of training for what they hoped would be a D-Day invasion of the Danish coast, and again, an opportunity to kick the Nazis out of their country, interspersed with marriage proposals month after month, to which Henny always had the same response. Marry you? Of course. But not here, not now, when the war's over, when there's peace, and we're back home with our families. After one such exchange on New Year's Eve at the start of 1945, Henny received a message, Mix has left. He got into a rowboat, impatient with waiting, possibly for Henny, certainly to get back into battle. He got into a rowboat, rowed back to Denmark, landing just south of Hamlet Castle at Elsinore to resume his sabotage work. Henny received letters from time to time that would be brought across by boats doing work for the resistance, but you could never respond. Working in Denmark as a saboteur, he could never have a return address. The last of his letters, dated February 23rd, was received on March 4. In that, uh, he wrote, My team had a terrible disappointment. The job did not go as planned. Had it succeeded, it would have made the world news. Otherwise, things are going well. But how I long for you. You would be such a help to me now. But we had our time. And it will come again when this is over. But sadly, that was not to be. Between the time Mix wrote the letter and the time Hay received it, he was captured uh, and killed by the Nazis. It was a burden she carried for the rest of her life, feeling that if she had been more flexible as her timing, perhaps uh, the outcome would have been different. I think unfairly, I think she would have gone to fight no matter what. But after a long and difficult transition, she did return to life, lived it well, uh, eventually married another resistance fighter, uh, and returned as well to what she had loved uh, before the war. Jorgen Kehler, who had, was shot, tortured, sent to a concentration camp for 15 months, emerged barely alive at the war's end uh, to become one of Scandinavia's leading cancer researchers. And the Danish Jews returned from Sweden to homes and businesses that in almost every case the Danes had maintained for them throughout their absence. At the seaport, in addition to the privilege of caring for the boat, I often have the opportunity to discuss the story with visitors. Adults often remark that Gerda is the most significant vessel at the seaport, despite four other vessels that have been designated National Historic Landmarks. Young people have interesting reactions as well. 
After one recent conversation with an Orthodox Jewish family, as they turned to leave Gerda's dock, I overheard their daughter, a girl of about 12, ask her mother, were the people who owned the boat Jewish? And when her mother replied no, I heard a follow-up with a second question. Then why did they help the Jews? And it struck me that this may have been the first time in this person's young life that it occurred to the people outside of her community might actually care about her. The question she asked is a question that goes to the essence of the story. To the culture and insights that prevented anti-Semitism from taking hold in Denmark and that set the stage for the rescue. When the great test arose, secular and religious voices in Denmark combined to urge, indeed demand, that Danes rally to the aid of the Jews. From the Freedom Council, the Resistance Oversight Group, came an open letter in the underground press calling on all Danes to help Jewish fellow citizens escape and warning that every Dane who provides help to the Nazis in the persecution of the Jews is a traitor and will be punished as such. And from the bishops of the Danish Lutheran Church, to which 94% of the population belong, came a letter read in every church on the Sunday following the Gestapo's Friday night raids, stating that whenever Jews are persecuted for racial or religious reasons, it's the duty of the Christian church to protest against such persecution, and that, in light of Danish history and our constitution, as well as her own religious beliefs, we must fight to preserve for our Jewish brothers and sisters the same freedom which we ourselves value more than life itself. These were undoubtedly stirring words, but words that could not have produced the immediate and widespread response that was needed if the message wasn't already deeply embedded in the Danish people. For more than a century, Danish institutions, government, church, schools, instilled the belief that a nation is at its best when its people are united as countrymen rather than divided by religion or race. That, in words that were spoken in Parliament in support of passage of an anti-hate criminal statute in the aftermath of Kristallnacht, that anti-Semitism was not just an insult and a danger to the Jews, but a threat to Danish democracy. That once you go down the path of relegating a part of society to second-class status, the illness will spread and poison society as a whole. That was a core part of the Danish creed. Those words, spoken in Parliament in support of the act, which passed overwhelmingly, were so clearly borne out at the war's conclusion, when once again, a regime built upon hate was consumed by it and reduced to ashes, while Denmark's commitment to democracy, equality, religious freedom, brought it through the ultimate test in some ways stronger than before. And so we have here a rare Holocaust story that uplifts and inspires, that leaves no doubt who we would want to be, that demonstrates the capacity and the responsibility of ordinary individuals to act when liberties and lives are threatened. It's a story that Gerda III embodies, and how fitting it is that we have this lighthouse tender to help light the way in times of darkness. I'd encourage you to come visit uh, Gerda III at the seaport. It's always on display uh, in the water. Uh, starting in late May, going to be part of an upcoming storybooks exhibit focusing on Gerda and a few other boats that have compelling people stories attached. I encourage you also to visit the upcoming exhibit at the Museum of Jewish Heritage in New York, The Holocaust, What Hate Can Do, which uh, opens on June 17. And uh, for more info, you might uh, purchase my book, Annie and Her Boat. Uh, but being a full disclosure kind of guy, I'll tell you also there's a, a new edition uh, somewhat uh, larger with facts that uh, people uh, came to disclose to me by virtue of the existence of the first edition. 
you everyone for listening. The podcast you just listened to was a lecture given by the author as part of the Sandra Bornstein Holocaust Education Center's BACS Lecture Series. If you enjoyed it and would like to hear the upcoming lecture in the series, a reading and discussion with Dr. Menez Afridi, author of Shoah Through Muslim Eyes, you can join us at the Cranston Public Library Central Library on Sunday, November 6th at 1.30 p.m. Info on how to register can be found in the show notes. If you'd like to send us an email, you can do that by emailing us at downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. Or you can reach out to us via social media with the hashtag downtimecpl. If you're feeling generous, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts because it helps people find the show. Thank you again for listening, and this has been another episode of Downtime. Downtime is a project of the Cranston Public Library and is produced by Zach Berger, Nomi Hay, Robin Nizio, and me, Taylor Cardillo. Audio engineering by Dave Bartos. Our theme music is Day Trips by Ketza, and our ad music is Happy Ukulele by Scott Holmes. Links to the books and movies discussed can be found in the show notes. Remember to rate and review Downtime on Apple Podcasts, connect with the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the hashtag DowntimeCPL, and if there's something you'd like to hear on the show, send an email to downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. Join us next week for more Downtime.